The reading for today is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you for that. Well, good morning, Redemption Arcadia. You know, when a pastor asks, asks you to come and speak, you're always curious why he asks you to pick uh, the text that you're going to preach on. So that was all of the context, um, but I am really just going to be speaking on Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, which the theme is, you are dead in sin. So I'm not sure if Frank believes uh, that I'm just a terrible person, or if he knows that I know how terrible you all are. I don't... I don't really know the reason for it, but for whatever reason, Frank asked me to, to speak on Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Um, a lot of you don't know me. My name's Josh Prather. I'm an elder here at Redemption Arcadia. Um, my wife and I have been coming here for six years. We're actually here before Frank, so I think there's a picture of us. That's my daughter, Samora, wife, Rachel. We go to the 5 o'clock service now, so you probably won't see me a lot on Sundays. Um, my central role is pastor of Community and Global Initiative Centrally with Redemption Church. And I'll get into that in just, just a second as we kind of carry into our text. So before I pray, I just want to give you an outline of where we're going and what you can kind of expect as we move forward. So I'm going to start, before we actually get to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, I'm going to start with a little bit of context through the biblical story and talking through um, what it is to be dead in sin and how we arrive at that point. We'll get into the text and we'll kind of talk through the different verses, the words, and really pull out what we can from the text. And then from that text, we always want to link it to the gospel, right? So we want to say, okay, where does Jesus and the good news of Jesus fit within this text? But from that, we recognize that God calls us as a people to live on mission in the world, meaning that we are supposed to be a display and love our neighbor. And then we'll end just with a few simple things of loving obedience. So in light of this text, we can't just be hearers of the word, but God calls us to be doers of the word. So what does it look like for us to lovingly obey in light of the text that we're going to go through? So pray with me, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this time together. I pray over your word. God, I pray over this message. Please speak through me. Use me as you see fit. In the name of Jesus, amen. So my pastoral role is pastor of Community and Global Initiatives. And community and global initiatives exist to disciple the whole church, all 10 of our congregations, to love the last, those that are picked last in society, usually because of injustice, the lost, those that do not know Jesus, 
and the least. So those that are usually marginalized, pushed to the fringes. So if you think of the refugee community, just what was spoken of up here, you think of those that are suffering from homelessness, you think of stuff globally, racial injustice, any of that, I kind of find my hand in. Um, one of the things that I've done here locally is something called my neighbor's keeper, and it's been with a rabbi and an imam, and we lead 10 other rabbis, 10 other imams, and 10 or 15 other pastors. And what we're trying to do is move people towards relationship to partner together for the common good. And what do we mean by common good? It means that even though we have very different faiths, and that's why we say multi-faith for the common good, when I sit down with a rabbi, when I sit down with an imam, an imam's a Muslim pastor, pretty much. When I sit down with them, we do not pretend to have the same faith, but when we come together, we can recognize similarities, and we can say, man, we want better schools, just as we talked about up here. We want to care for the poor, we want to care for orphans, and all these things we can do together in partnership. We say that we're trying to move the conversation to a conversation about another faith to a conversation with another faith. This is not an exaggeration. I think I've preached the gospel more in the mosque, you know, some Muslim church. I've preached the gospel more in the mosque over the last few years than I have in the church. And why is that? Because imams will often say, we want to know about Christianity and we want to know about the gospel from a pastor. We don't want to know about uh, Christianity or evangelical Christianity from Fox News. And we don't want to know about it from CNN. So will you please come and share? And it gives me an opportunity to literally share the gospel in the mosque. And it's been, been pretty incredible to see God use that. So just a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a, with a rabbi. We're sitting around the table with him and his family um, having dinner. And the imam is there. His wife is there. And he says, you know, Josh, my community, the synagogue, is actually more scared of evangelical Christians than they are of the Muslim community. And that stuck out to me. Well, it's, I think it would stick out to all of us because Islam's percep perception in the media usually isn't good. You know, when you're looking at the media or you see Islam in the media, it usually doesn't come across as good. So the fact that his community was more scared of evangelical Christians than the Muslim community I thought was a bit striking. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, because we believe that you're always trying to convert us. You're always trying to convert us, and I don't think he wants to convert us, but I do believe, and he looked at me jokingly because we're friends, he says, I do think you want to convert me. So it launched us into this incredible conversation, and by the way, if you don't like what I'm saying right now, if, you know, what I'm saying about us spending time with Muslims or spending time with rabbis, you know, if this upsets you, I would love to have a conversation with you personally, so you can email me at Switzer at redemptionaz.com. If there's any challenges, what, what you have with what I'm saying. And then, you know, we can yeah, sit down and have a conversation about it. So anyway, it launched us into a great conversation about conversion. So I started off by saying, well, number one, Christians don't believe they can convert anybody because salvation belongs to God. But there is something that longs for us to have every single person know and follow Jesus. It's not the only reason that we proclaim the good news, that we believe people are dead in sins, but it is a reason. So yes, do I want you and your family? Do I want the mosque? Do I want my Muslim friends to follow Jesus? Absolutely. We want every single person to follow Jesus. Why? Because of the passage we just read. Because we believe that outside of Jesus, every single person is dead in sin. And why do we believe that? We believe it because of the passage, but we also believe it because of the whole story of history and the whole story of the Bible. In Genesis 1, God breathes into the nostrils of man and gives them life. 
And what does it mean to have life? It means that we are fully united with God, and we have an image up here, fully united with God, ourselves, and creation. Now, in Genesis 1, it's not just the absence of war and strife, but it is harmony. It is the fullness of harmony and peace, complete oneness with God, ourselves. And when I say ourselves, we actually saw ourselves as image bearers. We didn't think we were more than human in pride. We didn't think we were less than human in insecurity, fully united within ourselves. There's this full oneness, but the fall in Genesis 3 corrupts all of that. A systematic theologian that I love named Mike Williams says that he actually doesn't like the term fall in Genesis 3. If you ever heard a pastor, I use this all the time. I'll say creation, Genesis 1 and 2, fall, Genesis 3, and then the story of redemption, which is Genesis 4, literally all the way to Revelation 21, is God fixing what we messed up, the story of redemption. But Mike Williams says, you know, I don't always like the term fall because it makes it sound like humanity fell down a step in Genesis 3 and got a nasty boo-boo when you say the fall. He's like, because it is so comprehensive and it is so devastating, all of God's good creation and the whole of human existence is now dead. Now, this doesn't mean that people are still not created in God's image. You see that. After Genesis 3, God still says that every human being is created in his image, which means they have beauty, they have value, which is what allows me to sit across from an imam, sit across from a rabbi, and say, we're all created in God's image, and how can we partner together in our cities for the common good? But that's not where the story ends, with the curse or with Genesis 3, because someone shows up in the first century that not only says that he has the cure, this person says that he actually is the cure to every single ailment and all that is broken in God's creation. A comprehensive cure for every crevice, every crack where disease and decay and sin has taken root. A cure that is much more than just a cure for a nasty scrape on the knee that you might think happened in Genesis 3. A cure that actually heals the whole of God's creation. And that's why, transitioning to the book of Ephesians now, that's why the Apostle Paul can't give us a vision of Jesus that just is our personal Savior that heals our hearts. Paul has to give us a vision of Jesus that conquers the whole of God's creation because all of it has been tainted by sin, which is why the book of Ephesians opens up with this grand picture of who we are now in Christ and what Christ has done for all of God's people, all of creation. If I had to sum up chapter one, I would say this, all Christians, all Christians have is Jesus and what they have in Jesus is to give God glory and to recognize the blessings that they have from him that are only found in Christ. It is far more than we could possibly comprehend but we are called now in Ephesians 1 to live our whole lives as adopted children for the glory of God and to love our neighbor. Is anyone here familiar with Simon Sinek and like leading with the why? The principle of, hey, you're supposed to lead with the why. Has anyone ever heard that? Anyone heard that principle? It's a very simple principle. Simon Sinek, he's a leadership guru, and you've heard this from other folks. He will say that people don't do what they're supposed to do if you just tell them how to do it. People won't do it if you just tell them what to do. People need to know why. 
And there's great companies that do this, and he talks about it from a corporate perspective, but that's exactly what Paul is doing. Because the book of Ephesians becomes really practical in the last three chapters. When you get the last three chapters, we're talking about marriage, we're talking about kids, we're talking about things that are really practical for our lives. But the first three chapters is the vision, right? It is this comprehensive scope of why. Why do we sacrificially serve our neighbor? Why do we lay down our lives for our wives and our spouses? Why do we give ourselves day in and day out for other people? Because of Jesus. He's the why. He's why we do everything we do. And that's our passage as well. Paul is trying to help us understand the greatness of who Christ is, who we are now in Jesus, and how we have to move forward. But Paul also says this. He opens up in chapter 1 by telling us all the blessings that we have in Jesus, all that we are in Christ. But then we get to our passage and he says, but you weren't always this way. And that's really important to remember as well. It's not just important that you remember that you're blessed, that you have more than you could ever possibly comprehend in Christ. It's also really important to remember you were once more terrible than you could ever possibly understand. And that's what leads us to our passage. It's very short. I'm just going to work through the first three verses. So let me read it again for us before I get into it. And this is a great time if you have your Bible, if you have an app, you can open it up now. Please follow along with me. I think that's helpful. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, we all did, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul starts by saying, and remember who you were before Ephesians 1, before you entered into God's community, before you were adopted, because this keeps us, if you're a Christian in this room, you have no opportunity for arrogance. There's no opportunity to boast, because the only thing that separates, in just a little bit in my message, we'll just get to a list of who we are in Christ and who we are outside of Christ, and the only thing that separates those two lists is Jesus. It is not you. So it levels the playing field for every single one of us. No opportunity to be arrogant. Remember who you were. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And once again, humanity has not just fallen down a step and got a nasty scrape on the knee, but we are actually dead. And dead men cannot bring themselves back to life. We're not just helpless. We're not just in a bad place in life. We are actually dead and outside of God and outside of Jesus entering into our community and entering into our lives, there is no opportunity to have life. It's the only way to have life is through Jesus, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work. And I have a slide here that I think is helpful. Paul has this incredible vision of sin. And I think it's far more comprehensive than usually we understand sin. Usually when I talk to people, they look at sin as bad things that you do personally. And I, I bet if I just took a poll in here, most of us would see what is sin. We'd say nasty things you do. But Paul has this comprehensive, huge vision 
of what is dead because of what happened in Genesis 3. Paul talks about the world, and he talks about evil now takes shape in systems and in structures. We'll, we'll get to that in just a second. And behind those evil systems and structures, you have demonic forces that are at work that actually lead us, play into our flesh, and lead us to walk down the path of sin. Now, do we make individual sins? Absolutely. But is there something far more comprehensive, far more bigger than we could know? There absolutely is. And I think an example for this in our society is consumerism. And I think it'd be helpful for me to use that just to help us understand when I talk about evil systems, when I talk about demonic forces, individuals choosing to do things they shouldn't do. I think that consumerism can be helpful. Paul uses the language of demonic, so that's the language I'm going to use when I'm talking about consumerism. And if you read any theologian from outside of the West, they will talk about consumerism as a demonic force. Now, I think a lot of us would say consumerism is a problem, but the weeds in my yard are a problem. I don't know if they're demonic, but when I listen to people from around the world talk about consumerism and what it's doing to us as a church and what it's doing to the rest of the world, they use the word demonic. And Rene Padilla, one of my favorite Latin American theologians, theologians, uses just that. He says that it's a system and a way of life that is actually led by Satan. And Victor Lebeau, an economist and retail analyst and author, wrote a very pertinent account of modern consumerism in 1955, and it's called The Price of Competition in 1955. And I have it up here. If you would, read along with me. And I think this just speaks, before you actually read it, give me back your attention just for a second. Before you read it. I know, you're drawn to read it. Give me back, just for a second. Before you actually read it, just listen to the religion that is laid out in this. Listen to the spirituality that is laid out. It is not just something that is withdrawn. It is meant to capture us as humans. It's meant to lead our desires. It's meant to inspire us. It's meant to give us our identity. That's what it's meant to do. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and the use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in competition, or in consumption, excuse me. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressures, listen to this, the greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he or she tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his cars, patterns of food and serving, his hobbies. Does that sound like in just individual desires that we make as people? It sounds like a comprehensive system that is supposed to tell us who we are as humans. It sounds like our value is supposed to be found in what we consume as Americans. And it's not just something light. 99% of what is consumed in the U.S. is trashed within six months. Because not only are things made to break, they're actually, we're actually told once they're made that they're obsolete. <laughs> right? When we get them, they no longer satisfy. Right? Because the consumption has to keep going. 
We are 5% of the world's population and consume 25% of the world's resources. And a nation built on consumption did not just happen. As, you, as we just read, even though that was 1955, I still believe it's relevant for today, it was designed. And if you think about sexism, you think about racism, you think about individualism, you think about humanism, all of these things you can look at through this threefold lens where it's not just individual desires, but there are systems that are created by evil men that then lead other men and women down the same path of darkness. And behind all of it are demonic and satanic forces that are telling us and moving us away from Christ. Anything that has led us to think that we can find satisfaction, value, identity, and anything other than Jesus is demonic. Now, why do I use that language? Because the Bible does. <laughs> and I can't escape it, even though it's really harsh sometimes to say. You can't escape it, because that's the language that the Bible uses. It's that these things are demonic. They're leading us away. And consumerism isn't the conversation. That's just an example of what Paul is talking about, who we were, because this is who we were. This is what we did. We were sons of disobedience. And there's good news in that and bad news. The good news is every single person has a family in this world. You're either adopted into God's family or you're a son or a daughter of disobedience led by Satan. Now, I think we need to understand the connection between disobedience and Satan because a lot of times we just say, man, I made a mistake. But we don't like to say that that mistake was actually inspired by Satan or had demonic influence behind it. But that's what Paul does. He links the two. They're so interwoven that when we make personal decisions that walk away from Jesus, that we are actually siding with principalities of darkness. And then he moves on. We all once lived in the passions of the flesh. And once again, Paul is putting himself into the equation. He's saying that this isn't just you guys, this is me. We all, this is who we all were outside of Christ. We all found our identity in these things. And we can't just blame it. I like to show that graph because it's helpful to get a comprehensive scope of Satan, of demonic powers, of sin. But it also reminds us that we just can't blame this all. Oh, you know what? Satan made me do it. But no, 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 the sin's in here, in the heart, and it actually leads us, and our flesh leads us towards our own passions. And it says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You know, I don't want you to raise your hand, but um, I would just love you to con just think about this. How many of you think that it is your right as a human and your right as an American to do what makes you happy? and to follow your own personal desires. That's the story that we're told. Why is it that every single children's show I watch with my daughter, I think I've seen Frozen a billion times. Why is it that every single children's show I watch with my daughter tells this story of princesses and little girls doing exactly what is inside of their heart, exactly what makes them happy, and it always ends up good? Is that your story? Is that the story of humanity? Is that how your marriage has gone? You just do whatever makes you happy. Is that how your relationships go? Is that how relationships flourish and thrive? You just do whatever, you just follow your heart, follow your desires. No, no, no. That's who Christians were. 
And that's what Paul is trying to say. You were once this. You did just what made you happy. You followed the desires of your heart. This is who you were, but not anymore. And therefore, you were by nature, because you did that and followed the desires of your heart and did what made you happy, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I think this is important because sometimes when we look at a text, we can say, well, that's just for the context back then. But Paul lumps it in with the whole of humanity. You were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of all of mankind. It's, it spans the scope of history, so we can't get ourselves out of it. The whole world outside of Jesus is lumped in to sin and death. Now, God hates sin, and he's angry at what has been done against his good creation and the wrath on those that do not know Jesus. And I'm just going to be really honest here. I don't like God's wrath. I don't. I, um, I don't like it. And oftentimes when I preach, if I get to a text like this, I, I want to almost make an excuse so you feel happy with God when you walk away that he's not quite as mean as you might think he is or, no, 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 he's not really that, mad. He's not really that angry at sin and evil in the world. I think that would be unfaithful. And God doesn't ask us to like him, number one. He doesn't say like me. He doesn't always say be happy with me. He says, I want you to love me because of the love that I have shown you in Christ. And we never fully understand God's wrath. We don't. But what we do see is God fully revealed in the person and the work of Jesus, which is what leads us to the gospel. You know, I think Paul is also speaking against ancient Greeks in this text because ancient Greeks would say that God helps those that help themselves, and nothing could be further from the truth, right? God helps those that helps themselves. No, God helps dead men, people that can't possibly bring themselves back to life. That's who God helps. We remember that this is the state of everyone that is not in chapter one, is dead in trespasses and sins, sons and daughters of disobedience. And the only thing that separates chapter one from chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is Jesus. Only thing that separates those two. And I have this slide that kind of has comparisons side by side of who we are in Christ. Now, there's more to be said about both these, but I think it's just helpful to see them side by side. Only through Jesus, if you are in Christ, you are blameless, redeemed and forgiven, sealed with the Spirit, adopted into God's family, and lavished with the riches of his grace. And to sum it up, we now exist, you now exist if you're a Christian, for the praise of his grace. But if you are outside of Christ, you are dead, you're a sinner or sinners, followers of the course of the world, followers of the prince of the power of the air, sons and daughters of disobedience. And to sum it up, you exist for yourself. So I want you to take a second and look at both those lists and think about which list represents you. Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? Now, if you've checked out for the whole message, I'm going to ask you to check in with me just for a moment, and I'll forgive you if you have. I do it with Frank all the time. <laughs> so if you checked out for everything, that's okay. Check back in with me right now. Because if you're a Christian... I want you to hear who you were. You were far worse than you could ever imagine. 
but in Christ you are far more loved and far more blessed than you could ever comprehend. But if you are not a Christian and you have not submitted your life to Jesus, you are far worse off than you could ever possibly understand. But there's good news. And the good news is that God actually offers the free gift of grace found in Jesus to anyone. So if you have not submitted and given your life to Jesus, I would ask you to do that right now. Give yourself to Jesus. But for most of us in this room, we've given ourselves to Jesus. We're Christians, which is the reason a lot of us are here. So we come to think about how we resubmit our lives to Jesus. <laughs> what does it look like to be a people that are constantly saying, we need more grace, we need more of Jesus, and we come into this room to resubmit and give ourselves back to him? And how we do that is one of the primary things we do is remembering that our predestination as adopted children, as it says in chapter one, is not primarily about us. Our predestination, if you are adopted into God's family, it is primarily about his glory and the world. It's so that God receives his praise and his worship, and he moves us as a people outside of these walls to your neighbors so that they can know the love of Jesus that you have found. You know, when we chop up Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul, and we go through verse by verse and we go word by word, we can really get a lot of the richness and the beauty out of it. But sometimes we, we run the danger of missing something. And what we miss is what I just spoke of earlier in the service is that Paul starts the first three chapters with the vision, with the why, that Jesus is greater and you are more blessed than you could ever understand if you've given your life for him. But he moves in his letter towards simple acts of obedience. He moves to the what. What now do you need to do? And not only that, here's how you must obey in light of what I've said. So I believe every message has to move us in that direction. We can't just say, man, we're just so blessed in Christ. Let's remember that. Who wants to go to Postino's? You know? No, it's got to actually move us. Okay, what do we do now and how do we obey? Because honestly, it's, as, as I just said, it's not primarily about us. So as we look at this text, how does this actually inform our mission as God's people? There's two things that, that can be helpful is how this informs our mission. And one is that it gives us empathy for every single one of our neighbors. Because as I said, as we were reading through, there is not one person that you're any better than. Everybody is everybody's equal, Right? The only difference is Jesus. You're either dead in trespasses and sins, you're a son or daughter of disobedience, which we all once were, or you have submitted your life to Jesus, and now you're an adopted son or daughter. So we have empathy. In some way, we can go to every single neighbor and say, I know what you're going through. I might not fully understand, but I know you. Why? Because I was you <laughs> outside of Jesus, and he's the only difference. So that's one. And the second is it gives us a passion for the lost. Is Jesus good news? Is he the best thing that you have in your life? He should be, if you've given your life to him. And that should be good news. And when we have family members or people across the street or people in our business who don't know Jesus, we have a passion that they would know Jesus. So how do we obey? There's three things that I thought of as we close up. 
And we'll end with this, for how we lovingly obey. And first is simply we just need to say thank you. We need to say thank you for God for adopting us into his family. Now, that's simple, but I would feel like it's a win for me if you left here today and on the way to the parking lot, you took a moment and you said, thank you. And you just said, God, thank you. I didn't deserve it. I didn't buy it. I didn't work for it. And you gave it to me. And I don't deserve it. Thank you. And the second is we pray for deliverance. Because as we walk through our text, we recognize that it's far more than people just being bad. People are in bondage to sin. They're a part of systems of evil. Satan is at work. And unless God intervenes into people's lives and delivers them from bondage, they cannot find freedom. So we say thank you. We pray for people to be delivered that do not know Jesus. And, and lastly, we share Jesus. We offer people good news. If people are hurting, if people are broken, if people are suffering, we as a people believe we have the greatest news in the world, and it has to be shared. We have to talk about it, and not in an awkward, clunky way, just as we're in relationship with people that don't know him, we recognize they need to know him because he is good news. Pray with me, and then the band will come up and close us out. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word, and I just pray that uh, in light of what we've heard today, that we would move towards our neighbor, that we would love them, that we would share good news, that we would always say thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus. Amen.